concept of and business model for fast fashion isn't new. It's been around in some shape since the mid-20th century, when modern, read post-World War II, manufacturing methods paired with an increasingly interconnected and efficient global supply chain, which allowed cheap labor in one country to use intellectual property from another and then sell to a third, made quick-response manufacturing, which is a system for production that at times dramatically reduces internal and external lead times for getting a product to market, both more effective and more attainable for more companies across more industries. Different fashion retailers and designers have claimed to be the first true fast fashion outfits on the scene. But in all cases, the business model in the fashion world that ultimately took hold seems to have originated sometime in the mid-20th century, as European clothing companies that were able to quickly replicate couture looks seen on European runways for mass-market audiences in ready-to-wear, off-the-rack form were brought over to the United States, which was a booming market for pretty much everything as spendy Americans riding a wave of wealth from the war and cheap, widely available credit were busily scrounging any component of the good life and high-end living they possibly could, including the veneer of style as seen and coveted in glossy magazines from across the Atlantic. Zara was one of the early innovators in this space, as was H&M, both of which were created by European business people who struck it big once they expanded from the high streets of European cities to the main streets of American cities. More competitors followed in the 1980s and 90s as variables once more conspired to create a relatively wealthy, spendy, upwardly mobile, and wanting-to-show-it middle class in the U.S. and other mostly urban areas around the world. And that led to an amplified desire to wear in-fashion clothing, but to do so on a relative budget, something a middle-class person could afford, and could afford on a regular basis. That regularity of purchase and consequent desire for affordability in order to be able to keep up with changing trends and styles became even more important as the number of fashion seasons, which were originally tied to the normal four seasons of the year, sped up to become a near-constant thing. New stuff was being released at a semi-regular cadence throughout the year, not just a handful of times each year, and that meant more purchases were required if you didn't want to be seen wearing something outmoded from a previous release cycle. This increase in fashion seasons was part of what stimulated the transition of some traditional fashion shops into fast fashion enterprises as their competitors were torquing up their release schedule and they found themselves needing to either get on board and make their own design, production, and marketing schedules more efficient or be left behind. Seen as outdated before their wares could even hit shelves because their competitors had already churned through three or four more cycles by that point. Around this same time, young people were becoming a lot more important economically, both in the sense that they were necessary components of the workforce to keep the late 90s and early 2000s boom ticking along, but also because they suddenly had money given to them by on average wealthier parents and from those jobs they were working. And that money was just sitting in their pockets and bank accounts. That value augmented by credit available to them via more widely available credit cards. 
Thus, trendier releases became the norm, as younger people could then buy a lot of of-the-moment clothing, cheap, wear each piece a few times, and then get rid of those garments, buying new ones a few weeks later. That youth focus was further amplified by the dawn of social media and influencer culture, which allowed fast fashion companies to produce staggered, always-on-release cadences that outpaced even their previous super-quick design-release turnarounds. New clothing drops could happen at any moment, even several times a day, and this made sense because the desirable youth audience could be reached at any time via the devices in their pockets. There was no need to put out a new catalog or make other such marketing investments. Those time frictions had all but disappeared. It's currently estimated that the fast fashion market grew from $25.9 billion in 2020 to $30.58 billion in 2021 and will further grow to $39.84 billion in 2025. It's also estimated that about 92 million tons of textile waste, mostly from clothing, is produced each year, and about 85% of those textiles end up in landfills. The estimated value of the clothing we discard has ticked up to around $400 billion each year, a problem that's been massively amplified by the emergence of fast fashion companies and similar operational models. What I'd like to talk about today is one fast fashion entity in particular that has come to represent some of the most extreme excesses of the industry, while also having proven more successful than most at rapidly and thoroughly capturing the attention of that ever-so-desirable youth market. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Vogue Business, and it's entitled Reality Show Love Island Dumps Fast Fashion Sponsor for eBay. Xi'an is a Chinese company that was founded in 2008 as a dropshipping business, basically a company that acts as an intermediary between producers of things and those who want to buy what those producers of things are making. A dropshipper typically does a lot of marketing and promotion then, but when an order is placed through their website or other sales channel, they put in an order with the manufacturer, or in some cases some other intermediary sales entity, rather than holding stock of the items they're selling. Those items are then shipped directly from the maker to the buyer without the dropshipper having to handle any of the products. This is a business model that only became feasible with the advent of just-in-time shipping systems and an ever more connected supply chain, and it was amplified by the emergence of the web, then exploded with the advent of social media. It was further amplified when smartphones hit the scene, as that allowed dropshippers of all shapes and sizes to pop up, start a profile on Facebook or YouTube, and then go to town selling products from a standing start never having to touch any of those products or rent warehouse space, just taking a slice of each sale for their efforts as an intermediary, in theory, without having to make any pre-profit investment at all. In those early days as a dropshipper, Sheehan was called ZZKKOO and dealt in wedding dresses, then expanded into women's wear more broadly and rebranded as She Inside. 
She inside benefited from its adjacency, after a move early in its operation, to the Guangzhou clothing industry, where a whole lot of factories that make a whole lot of clothes for a whole lot of companies around the world are located. They were able to set up wholesale relationships with many of these companies and essentially exported something that was already happening locally. They sold cheap women's wear of all kinds, but focused on stuff they could get inexpensively from these factories. The sorts of things that were already available at low prices in local street stall shops. In 2010, they started expanding into cosmetics and fashion accessories, like purses and shoes. And a few years later, they began to dip their toes into influencer marketing to scale up their international presence. Six years after their founding, in 2014, she inside acquired a Chinese e-commerce company and became a more conventional online retailer. In 2015, it changed its name to Xi'an so they would be easier to remember and type in online. In 2016, they scaled up an effort to make and sell their own in-house branded clothing and fleshed out their global supply chain. And by 2019, they were dominating the then-burgeoning youth-centric social network TikTok, throwing gobs of money and free products at influencers in order to get their wares everywhere, alongside its continued presence on YouTube, where haul videos, videos where YouTube personalities basically unboxed and showed off what they bought on Shein, continued to dominate the fashion facet of that platform. Around that same time, they also doubled down on sponsoring celebrity endorsers, including contestants on the TV show Love Island, as mentioned in that Vogue business piece. Such sponsorships helped add credibility to the brand, pouring fuel on an already hot-burning sales flame and they continued to spread sponsorship money and products across a wide variety of online and traditional media projects, and directly to the folks involved in these projects. By late 2020, Xi'an was the world's largest online-only fashion company, and by late 2021, it was worth $30 billion. By mid-2022, Xi'an accounted for 28% of the U.S. fast fashion market. It achieved this rate and scale of growth in part by being a lot faster and more iterative than its competitors. Earlier, ultra-fast fashion platforms like Fashion Nova and ASOS would add about 1,000 new styles to their offerings each and every week. Shein releases about 1,000 new styles every day. And that's alongside the tens of thousands of products that are already available in their catalog at any given moment. The price of things in that abundant hoard of options has also played a role in their growth and success, as Shein carved out a nice but not fancy and not pretending to be fancy niche that other brands struggled to define and own. You can get clearance items on Shein for under $5, and new tops can be found for under 6 and dresses for about 10 Part of the appeal to many of their customers is that you can get a whole new outfit for maybe $30 and a year's worth of regularly changed out clothes for a few hundred. Part of what allows Shein to produce so many new garments so quickly are their relationships with local manufacturers, which allows them to scoop up a bunch of data about what seems to be trending and coming next. They can then design and manufacture a very small run of items, as few as 100 pieces, and try them out to see if they sell. If they do, they've already got that product designed and a factory ready to make more of them. 
getting a bunch of highly desirable items out the door, essentially immediately. Anything that doesn't work is a low-cost bet that didn't pay off, and they can afford to stomach a lot of such failures because of how many things ultimately do work. Many clothing retailers and brands cannot move at this pace, don't have the necessary data to move so quickly, and have a limited period during which they can place orders and make changes with their suppliers in the look or the quantity of their order, which makes them a lot more sluggish and less likely to be able to adjust on the fly to new trends. And that benefit is the result of years of relationship building on Sheehan's part, their geographic adjacency to all these factories, and their capacity to work with small and medium-sized manufacturers, not just the large ones, that are visible and accessible from overseas. They know the lay of the local land, whereas their competitors tend to work through intermediaries to get all of this done. The company has also reportedly earned a reputation for paying the factories they work with in a timely fashion, which is rare in this industry, and they are apparently on good enough terms with the owners of some of these factories that when they relocated to Guangzhou in 2015, the factories relocated too, so they could keep working with Xi'an. Xi'an also, interestingly, benefits from the 2018 trade tariffs placed on Chinese goods by then-President Trump. The Chinese government waived their export taxes for direct-to-consumer companies to help counter this tariff's impact, and Xi'an's packages are small and worth less than $800 a piece because they go straight from the manufacturer to the customer, which means they are almost always duty-free on the U.S. side. Consequently, the company hasn't had to pay export or import taxes on their shipments to the U.S. for years, which gives them a leg up over their competitors who typically do pay such taxes because of how they order and ship large quantities of product all at once. There have long been rumors that in order to maintain this pace and continue scaling up, the factories Sheehan uses to make and source their wares utilize all sorts of abusive, cost-cutting measures, including the employment of children. They've also been accused of ripping off other designers' work, periodically using offensive imagery on their products, selling products loaded with excessive levels of lead, and being in violation of the UK's 2015 Modern Slavery Act. There hasn't been any solid evidence of Sheehan or the factories they employ consistently using child labor, though there have been periodic bits of pseudo-evidence and a whole lot of speculation and hearsay on the matter. At the moment, this would seem to still be considered a rumor, with the understanding that it probably does happen from time to time, as seems to be the case for most aspects of any supply chain that dips into China at all but it hasn't been proven to be a regular or known component of their infrastructure. So the jury is still out on this, but it would seem to not be a thing, at least not at scale, from what we know right now, what we have hard evidence for. Sheehan has in the past, and continues to, rip off other designers. But that's true of all fast fashion companies. That's kind of part of the industry, it's what allows them to exist. So while this is probably seen as a very shady thing by the folks who actually design the stuff they rip off and then sell without attribution and for their own profit, it's also not illegal. And it is very, very common. If you wear anything made by any fast fashion company, you are almost certainly wearing a garment based on someone else's design and which is possibly near identical to that other piece, though usually they'll be made of cheaper components and manufactured by workers who are paid a lot less. 
The offensive imagery Sheehan has used on their products a few times over the years has been the result of that copying other designers' practice, and the fact that they just copy so much stuff all day every day that weird and offensive things sometimes slip through their vetting process. At times, the folks tasked with doing the copying will see something go viral or become popular in some online interest group, and they will steal it and apply it to their own designs without understanding the cultural resonance and context of those images elsewhere around the world. As a consequence, they have produced necklaces emblazoned with decorative swastikas and phone cases with a handcuffed black man outlined in chalk, and the company quickly apologized when called out for using these images, pulled the items in question from their catalog, and said that they both didn't understand the meaning of these images, and that they're sorry for ripping off the images in the first place. Oops, basically but nothing to indicate that it won't happen again, and it almost certainly will. Their health-related issues are similarly unfortunately common in the fast fashion space, as most of these clothes are made in the same factories and or same parts of China as clothes produced by other fast fashion makers, and a lot of non-fast fashion makers as well, with the same laborers and same overall environmental conditions and raw materials utilized pretty much across the board. That doesn't mean that it's okay that they shipped products with 20 times the legal levels of lead in them to Canada, and we will almost certainly continue to see more such issues in the future. But it is another common thing in fashion overall, and that means because Shein is like all other fashion companies, except bigger and faster, they will tend to do more on average of the bad stuff as well. And the alleged violation of the UK's 2015 Modern Slavery Act was brought up in late 2021, when Sheehan claimed it was ISO certified up to a certain standard, but that claim was challenged, and it was found that staff working at six sites in Guangzhou were working 75-hour weeks for Sheehan, which violates that act, alongside a similar act in Australia and also Chinese labor laws. The legal repercussions for this are still working their way through various governments, but it's unlikely anything significant will happen. Because again, and I know I sound like a broken record here, these issues are common across fast fashion, and the fashion world in general, to a slightly lesser degree. So while a lot of what Shein does, in terms of what they produce, the conditions in which their employees work, and so on, are the same or similar to what other fast fashion companies do, because Shein is so scaled up and moves so much faster, they tend to have amplified versions of all of these problems. And though they seem to be very incentivized to handle these issues when they arise, it is kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, where they will probably never get ahead of all these problems or fix the underlying issues, and will just keep whacking them when they pop up, but not before. And for every one that they do address with real solutions, several more are probably going unnoticed and or unaddressed. Ultimately, the biggest controversy surrounding Shein and fast fashion as a whole, though, is the disposability of their clothing and the fact that they depend on conspicuous and compulsive consumption to keep moving at their desired pace. They need people to buy not one shirt, but a dozen. And they need customers to keep doing that all the time at a regular cadence without ever really thinking about it. And they make shopping in this somewhat thoughtless way not just possible, but fun. 
That existential need creates economic, ecological, and social issues that extend far beyond the carbon footprint of this industry and beyond all the waste produced when clothes are churned out rapidly and only meant to last a few wears before falling apart. The reason Love Island and other platforms and brands and shows and influencers that have been working with fast fashion companies are shifting away from doing so now is that younger people in particular have over and over in surveys and other data-gathering resources said that they care about the environment and intend to stop buying from fast fashion brands because they are bad for the environment. They prefer thrifting and upcycling and reusing old stuff anyway so they expect to keep nudging their purchases in that direction in the coming years. That's the intention, and that's what people self-report. But the data on sales in these spaces, the reused clothing and fast fashion worlds, indicate that folks have not started talking with their money yet, not on a huge scale anyway. In 2022, a survey of 7,000 American teenagers ranked Shein as their second favorite e-commerce site, right after Amazon. Recent investment rounds in fast fashion companies, including a big one, somewhere between $1 and $2 billion that Shein took on from private investors last April, support the data-backed assertion that this transition to reused clothing from fast fashion isn't happening rapidly and possibly won't happen at all, at least not anytime soon. That investment round brought Shein up to a valuation of around $100 billion which is more than the combined worth of H&M and Zara and more than any other private company globally other than SpaceX and ByteDance, the latter of which owns TikTok. Back in mid-2021, Shein overtook Amazon as the top shopping app on U.S. app stores for the first time. On the day I'm recording this, Shein's app is number 12 of all apps on the iOS app store, and Amazon's is down at 24. And folks who use the app are incentivized to keep opening it up throughout the day and to stick around, perusing their algorithm-recommended offerings, and watch live streams, participate in contests, earn points, share looks that they like with friends, and accumulate compounding discounts. Shein is in many ways just another fast fashion retailer, but because they're operating at an entirely different scale, using available marketing tools and channels in new, more effective ways, and building out what would seem to be a far superior, in terms of economics at least, supply chain setup, that makes them something measurably different in terms of their impact on the fashion industry and otherwise. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Palm Planet by Jocelyn C. Zuckerman. I picked up this book because I realized that although I know that Indonesia in particular is heavily reliant on palm oil as a source of income for its exports, I didn't have a sense of the scale of palm oil beyond that and its impact economically on that and a few other countries as well. As it turns out, palm oil is one of those ingredients, one of those raw components that has found its way into just about every part of the world and a shocking number of industries globally as well. And yet it's not something that we pay particular attention to unless we work in an industry that incorporates it into a whole lot of our foods in particular. 
If you are curious about this ingredient and the controversies, including environmental controversies, but also health and geopolitical related controversies surrounding it, consider picking up a copy of Palm Planet by Jocelyn C. Zuckerman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.